0: Hi folks, this is Jacob Grace with Grassland 2.0. In the fall of 2021, Grassland 2.0 hosted a four-part digital dialogue series focusing on the question, what are healthy agro ecosystems? The series explored benefits these systems have on people, farms, communities, and the land. This episode features a recording of Adam Abel, the new statewide grazing specialist for Wisconsin NRCS. For years, Adam has been working in the eastern part of the state with large-scale confinement dairies to help them begin grazing their heifers and dry cows. Last year, Adam was selected as NRCS's state grazing specialist to manage statewide grazing initiatives in Wisconsin. Here's Laura Payne from Grassland 2.0 introducing Adam Abel in December of 2021.
1: Okay, I think we'll get started. Welcome everyone. My name is Laura Payne. I'm the outreach coordinator for Grassland 2.0 and I'd like to welcome you to uh, this edition of our digital dialogue. Um, Grassland 2.0 is a um, big um, multi-state five-year project that seeks to start a dialogue and start discussion about what we want the long-term future of agriculture and our food system to look like in the, in the upper Midwest. So we've, we've um, worked hard to create opportunities to, for all kinds of stakeholders across the region to have those kinds of discussions. And one of those discussions is this digi- digital dialogue series. Um, this is our fourth um, session that we've had and we're covering topics that we hope will be of interest uh, to participants and stakeholders around the region. Um, today we have Adam Abel, uh, who's our state grazing land specialist with the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Um, I've known Adam for a long time and I'm, I'm excited to welcome him uh, to be our speaker today. Um, Adam's family is has a... Um, deep roots in the grazing community. I actually knew his folks uh, when they first started uh, dairy grazing in Clark County. And Adam has followed the path of helping a lot of farmers around the state uh, get started in managed grazing as a grazing planner and recently um, took this role as the state grazing land specialist. So we're really happy to welcome Adam and he's going to be talking about environmental benefits of rotational grazing and future trends in Wisconsin. And I will turn it over to Adam.
2: Thank you, Laura. Well, everyone, nice to meet you. My name's Adam. Um, Like Laura said, I just took over the position as a state grazing land specialist. Uh, I was detailed to that position for several months and now with my current role, I'm going to be going on just a year in this detail or this position now in some capacity. So it's been a lot of fun. I've been enjoying it. I've been enjoying getting out, getting broader sweep of the state. But uh, what we're gonna get a chance to talk about is some of the things I've observed today, uh, benefits of rotational grazing. uh, And we'll just kind of go over some of the trends that I'm seeing as we go forward into the future. This is just observations, what I'm seeing. Contracts we're getting, and just directions that I'm getting a lot of interest and inquiries from from the field. So, a little about me. Get rid of this. You can see. Oops. Um, I just wanted to share a little bit about me. Like Laura said, I grew up on a rotational grazing dairy farm. Uh, my father started grazing when I was eight years old. It wasn't because he wanted to graze; it was because uh, we had such bad stray voltage that we had to either get out of dairy or find something else to do. And uh, that was the same year that Andy had the first grazing conference, I believe, in Stetsonville. And I've still got those folders. I've kept them. But I want to share some pictures of our farm as it is right now. It's evolved from a dairy to a beef. Uh, grass finished beef operation and my dad also raises poultry but it's been fun and the one thing that i have to say about my opportunity to work with and around my parents um you know he's gone from dairy to stockers to beef to chicken and it's kind of progressed as he's wanted to get out of uh the more work and labor intensive uh, dairy operation but it's really allowed me to dive into a lot of the different aspects of the questions i get throughout of the state and across the state, but right now uh, this is my parents' farm. Um, these hey, are last year. Yes. Adam,
3: let me interrupt. Interrupt you. We're not seeing your slides. Uh, okay. We're seeing your title slide, but not the rest. At least I'm not.
2: Let's try that again here.
3: Sorry about that. <clears throat> Am I right? It's not just me, Carl.
2: Yeah, I'm still seeing the title slide as well. There we go. Oh, there we
3: go. Oh, now we're let me.
2: Let's try this again.
3: All right, just take it from the top, Adam.
2: Looks good, (laughs) thanks. Can you see that, 33 years of grass? Yep. Yes. All right, so this is my parents' farm, just so everyone knows. So, um, uh, like I said, the one thing that I've really enjoyed and what is really hammered into me is just how important grazing can be for the state of Wisconsin. When you talk about food, when you talk about soil health, when you talk about soil quality, economics, uh community survival everything about this there's no downside to this and that's why i've been a huge supporter of grazing all my life i feel super passionate about what we can do with rotational grazing and i just love the direction i see some of this going however i work for the nrcs well let's get into this this is one of my favorite quotes and this is something too anybody who works with grazers or wants to talk with rotational with rotational grazers or is interested in getting started in that, they really need to internalize this quote. And I love it. It's from Henry Ford. Whether you think you can or think you can't, you are right. And I can't say enough how true this proves all the time. I work with a lot of people who they are bound and determined that grazing is going to work. And it will absolutely work for them. You know, they start, they do it, they're going to be successful. And just like anything else, if you go into this saying that it doesn't work, my dad tried that, the neighbor tried that, it's not going to work for me. You know, there's a lot to be said about mindset going into these different systems. And when you go from uh, our typical, and I'm going to say typical, um, because probably still a lot of people are more leaning towards a confinement system in a lot of ways. But those confinement systems are systems that we've used in Wisconsin for almost 100 years. That's what people grew up. That's what they knew. That's how they understand operating with livestock in a lot of situations. So really internalizing that mindset shift that actually is required to go to a management type system like rotational grazing. Some people, it's just real easy. That's just, that's what they want to do. That's what they get. That's just their path. Um, Some people are more mechanically aptitude and they don't, um, it's a little harder uh, process to come to. But either, either way, like I said, whether you think you can or you think you can't to a right, and that's Henry Ford's quote. I stand by that. That is true with grazing from here on out. And as far as the pictures today go, I believe that the majority of them are from successful grazing operations that I've worked with from Wisconsin. This picture here just happens to be from a farm up in Shawano County that was instrumental in helping us get rotational grazing throughout northeastern Wisconsin. Every large CAFO or large dairy operation that I worked with that now has heifers on pasture, they came out to this place first. So um, unfortunately, the uh, previous owner passed away. Now I'm still working, have the opportunity to work with his son, but um, I have so much respect for this family and uh, the amount of people that we've introduced to this concept. A lot of it started right here. So, So why would a producer be interested in rotational grazing? You know, those are big questions. You know, you start talking about buying land and what are your goals and what do you want to do? And the same recurring themes come up all the time, you know, reducing your operating costs. You know, if, if you were to keep cattle out for half the year, that means you don't have to start up the tractor to put away stored feed for half the year. Um, just just less infrastructure in general, typically on grazing city, in grazing environments. Now, that being said, you know, you have to understand that some systems are infrastructure heavy or or not, and you can flex that and build into that. So you gotta be careful with that. It doesn't equal uh, cheap operating costs, but absolutely can reduce your costs with good management. Reduce labor, done right, it's a mental game. So it's more about thinking about what you're going to do and working smarter instead of harder. That's really a concept that you've got to internalize with rotational grazing. Human health benefits, a lot of people have gone and they're interested in uh, grass-fed beef, grass-fed pork, grass-fed chicken. They want the omega-3, the CLA. They want reduced, you know, uh, antibiotics. They want reduced, you know, hormones, all of that across the board. Most grazing operations, um, you know, are going towards a grass finish or a grass-fed aspect of this. So they're reducing a lot of those other uh, inputs that are important to people. The environmental benefits too. Now that's where NRCS comes into and we're gonna go more into that as well. But there really are some opportunities with rotational grazing from a water quality, from soil health, from a soil erosion, protecting our environment. There are opportunities here that we could implement wide scale across the state. And that's what I'm trying to do and I'm having a lot of fun with the position. And then also improve cattle health. There is. Not a single place that I go to that's doing a good job of rotational grazing that doesn't say that their cows look awesome and they're happy with the way they're going. I mean, these are just the common themes that you see all the time. You you set these systems up so they're easy to manage and people can in, implement them easily. And these are things that turn and go over and over again. And these are the fun thing. You know, you uh, start doing this or if you start talking to people about this or you have the opportunity like I do, this is just like the fun of it. It works. You're able to work with a system that, that's good for your economics, your labor, the environment, the cattle, and people like it. So there's no downside to this. So I absolutely love my job. I feel very fortunate for what I'm able to do. So why is the NRCS interested in prescribed grazing? <clears throat> well, first of all, I, I want to preface that with a little bit of Uh, where the NRCS is in this. And I love kind of putting it this way. It's black and white. It's kind of blunt, but it's reality. The NRCS is not interested in setting up farms or businesses or even prescribed grazing in and of itself. What we're interested in is soil erosion, reducing that water quality you know, environmental benefits. That's what the NRCS is really interested in. What's really nice about this, if you set up a rotational grazing system, so that way it's something that's a long-term management scheme that's good for the environment. And oh, by the way, it's good for your cattle. It's good for your economics. It's good for your human health. And it jives very good with what our programs and what our practice standards love. You can really mesh those things together with an opportunity to set people up, to have an impact on the local community. And there's like, like I said before, there's no downside with this. There is nothing but opportunity with our programs and just meshing those together. Now, that being said, you've got to clearly state your goals, have an understanding of where you want to go and make sure that everyone's on the same page if you do move forward with something within the agency. So, interesting things about rotational grazing. Now this is just summer research, and this is a fun slide, I've used this for a long time, but just in the summer months, this isn't looking at winter months, but with research that was done in Pennsylvania, we've got a 24% less sediment loss. And I would actually say that models I've run in Wisconsin, it's way less than that, or way more, um, way less sediment, sediment loss than that. So what I'm saying is we're seeing even Better results: twenty-two uh, percent less sediment-bound P runoff. If you're familiar with the GLRI area or Wisconsin waters, phosphorus is the largest nutrient that we have issues with most of the time. When I say issues, um, it's the limiting nutrient in most of our state's waters. So, if you put phosphorus in any lake, in any river, it's adding to the algae blooms that we're going to be getting. It's adding to degrading our surface water quality. Um, less soluble P runoff. So, you know, that's the the soluble P that maybe comes through a tile or is there so much phosphorus out there that it actually dissolves into the water and goes into our uh, waterways through concentrated flow paths. Uh, 27% lower uh, ammonia volatilization, a 14% lower net emission of greenhouse gases and a 25% carbon footprint, smaller carbon footprint. And that's just because, I mean, Easy math is if you harvest less, if you use less gas to harvest your forage, you can start to see where you can gain some of those benefits. So each operation is unique, but the the real trend here is when you start looking at this across the board, we are seeing these benefits with rotational grazing. And it is something that we are interested in pursuing with NRCS, doing more and more of. It's a true environmental impact that has a positive impact to the community as well. So like I said, there's no downside to this. It's a ton of fun. So this is a site that I worked with. And one thing that uh, I like to talk to people about, especially new soil cons or people interested in rotational grazing, a lot of our farmland in Wisconsin is extremely expensive. Uh, You know, $5,000 is pretty common now. And I'm working with operations up to $15,000 an acre land. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of concern when you talk to a bank saying that you're going to put that in the grass. People aren't familiar with just what this looks like. They think about pasture as wasteland. They don't think about it as the opportunity that it could be. But when you start looking at the economics with rotational grazing, with beef, with dairy, these systems not only compete, but in a lot of situations, they're out-competing uh, the other systems. So now we've got a system that is great for the environment, is great for cattle health, human health, and oh, by the way, this is truly production agriculture. This competes with our dairy business models that we've got out there. This competes with our beef business models that we've got out there. Not only competes, but it's proven to be better when you start running economic models that way. So. When you think about conservation, a lot of people think about just as uh, resource concerns and, you know, how you're going to impact water quality and sediment loss and all these things that are happening with our lakes and streams and soils. That's great. But I also want people to consider the long term goal of this. If we invest this money, but it's in a system that's not profitable, that's not sustainable either. So if we've got this business system that works and it works better and is better for the environment do you see how that could potentially go into the future how you can scale that up and now we've got a long-term solution on a lot of these landscapes that's that gets really fun
1: you're muted adam can you hear me yes
2: all right sorry Talking to myself. Can you <laughs> see um, the all the slider? Is it covered up by faces? No, we, we can well, see the whole slide. Yeah, all
1: we're right. on the ten thousand to fifteen thousand an
2: acre one. I've just wanted to make sure that everyone's could see that. So, anyways, this is a dairy heifer operation in northeast Wisconsin, and uh, this is a fun one to be out to. Both Laura and Randy have walked this site with me, so it's a ton of fun. This site uh, is, there is, I don't know, probably three-quarters of a mile of river that runs adjacent to this site. And all that land that you're looking at right now, three, eh, now it's four years ago, was in a corn-soybean rotation. So you want to talk about true impact. We've got a buffer that covers the most sensitive areas on the property that he's got heifers on right now and he's loving it. It's great. Um, Here's another operation that I want to show. And this is just some of the impacts that we can do with rotational grazing and some of the benefits. So you go to a lot of these sites and to be clear, I'm not a super big advocate of putting cows into the woods. But if we've got a situation where we're going to thin that down to 30 percent, and get sunlight in there and get grass going in there, or if we can manage that in a way that's not going to have a negative impact downstream, there's opportunities there. This site was one that was thinned out. Um, there was mostly invasives in there. What we did was we left this and we took it down to 30% canopy. Now the one thing that I have to go back to, and I want to uh, get back to the same angles, this is the exact same site but the angles aren't the same. So I've got to go back and take a different picture with the same angle so it's a fair comparison. And I'll probably have to do it in April instead of May just to be fair with that. But the reality is there was no understory with this site because of the invasives and the shading out of any, anything else that would come on. So there were gullies. You can look into that picture. There was severe bank erosion. That's just because there was nothing to slow the water down. In two years, we had a dramatic excuse me, a drastic impact on that site. And I love taking people to the site. And I'll be the first to say that when you walk the site, this, this is still a work in progress. But this was changed through management alone. And that's the really cool thing. Somebody is able to go out there and change the way they were managing this site. And we've taken it from a site that's contributing phosphorus, soil, nitrogen, all that stuff that's tied up with these soils and flooding down into our waterways. We've taken it from uh, a concern to a site that is, is viable for use for animals and stable and it looks great and we're improving the infiltration on the site. So. So NRCS resource concerns. I'm going to go over a little bit about how we view things from the NRCS standpoint, and then also the processes and some of the basic procedures we look at when we set up grazing systems. So from the NRCS standpoint, resource concerns that we look at are organic matter depletion, excessive nutrients in surface water, whether that's N, P, or K. We don't want to see those running off and going downstream. Uh, Undesirable plant productivity and health. So if we have a the best way to describe that is an overgrazed pasture. You know, there it's, I, you can get these things 20, 30, 40, 50 acres big, just mismanagement. And we've got a site that's not producing, and that leads to other issues with poor infiltration, uh, excessive runoff. Those are all things that we can work with with that. Um, excessive plant pest pressure that's typically like, um, you know, invasives or. Canada thistle, or situations that are really causing a problem for that pasture to really be something that's desirable. Inadequate feed and forage, Um, So many people think when they come to me, I've got this question so often that they want to graze. They heard about rotational grazing. They've got 20 acres and they'd like to set that up for rotational grazing. Oh, cool. 20 acres. That's a good start. Then they tell me they want to put hundred animals on it. So that would be an inadequate feed and forage. And those are conversations that you've got to have with people up front. You got to say with those situations, Hey, this is 20 acres. This is what you can support. So if you really want to do this, We either need to scale back on the number of animals or the class of animal that you're putting out there, or we really need to look at what's the minimum to get you into this so that you're successful. And then also inadequate livestock water. With the types of systems that we're actually promoting and putting into Wisconsin, we cannot minimize the importance of water distribution. That's what makes this work. And we're very fortunate because these cool season grasses in Wisconsin, they're super productive. They grow through most of the season a great majority of Wisconsin doesn't experience an extreme summer slump so with good management and good residual we can do amazing things <clears throat> so once a resource concern has been identified in inventory now what so this comes back to setting up these systems and you know it's one thing to talk about rotational grazing and fence and livestock pipeline and watering systems, and then even going into more advanced concepts. The thing that I have seen without a doubt that needs to be focused on from the get-go with any grazing conversation is understanding a proper layout and understanding how cattle or sheep or whatever animal you're working with actually flows. And this is my saying, and I love it, and I cannot stress enough, there's no right way to set up a grazing system, but there are definitely wrong ways. And anybody who's ever grazed, removed cattle, or worked with a fence that was set up with a blind corner or 180 degree turn, they know just how much that sucks. And if you're new to rotational grazing, and concepts like even just being able to put a gate out there. You know, these are things that if you're new to this, you might not even think that, hey, this was a cost-shared fence. This was designed by the NRCS. Can I put a gate there? Like that simple concept.
1: So we'll finish up with uh, Adam's presentation in the next 15 minutes or so, and then still have some time for questions. So if folks um, have some thoughts or questions you wanna share uh, you can put those in the chat, or just um, keep them in mind, and we can. Um, you can unmute and ask them yourself. So take it oh, away, good. Adam. You want to go ahead and um, do the full screen with your slides?
2: Thought I had. Sorry. That's okay. There we go. Can you see that now? All right, perfect. Um, we were here at the approved repair. We went through the forge. I think we're at this right here. And then um, I guess my main purpose with starting out here was just to make sure that people understand that with rotational grazing, the, the limiting factor for success from what I can tell is not uh I shouldn't say one of the major limiting factors for success is truly understanding how to mesh all these different components together. The fence, the water lines, the lanes, the seeding, make sure you get the right grass species and the right soils. Like it's not like there's just one way to do this but there are as I've said before there are wrong ways to handle these situations or there are less desirable ways let's say and if we can eliminate those hiccups with uh, beginning grazers that's going to promote them or get them interested and show them the benefit of doing this long-term. And that's what I've focused most of my planning on. So when you're designing a pasture layout, and I'm going to go through this a little quicker than I probably would have just so everyone we would get to the end of this. Um, I'm always thinking about efficiency. How intensive do you want to graze? Are you going to move them five times a day or are you going to move them once every week? Because that has huge ramifications on what that's actually going to do. and. I know that until you actually see this, like the one thing that I got to stress, like if you've got an interest in grazing, you really need to go out there and take some clippings and go out there and look at what happens. Even going from a, from a three-day move to a one-day move, when you start seeing the benefit as far as dry matter production, soil health, what actually happens in those pasture systems, I I always equate it to like a snowball. You get this thing going and it just builds on itself and it gets better and better and better and better and better. And it's rewarding to be a part of that. Um, Other things as a beginning grazer, how much are you going to spend? Are you going to go out there with equipment? One of the biggest mistakes I see are people boxing themselves in to like these permanent pastures because they think that it's so much work to move polywire. So they're like, I'm going to build one acre pastures. I'm going to build 31 of them. And I'm going to rotate every single day. That's going to work about once. And then the second time through, the grass is going to be at a different height or you're going to be into the summer slump. And it just, it really is a difficult situation to manage. And what ends up happening is you get parts that are way mature, you get parts that get overgrazed, and then you lose dry matter production, and then it's just this really bad cycle. I shouldn't say bad, because it's not the end of the world, but you lose so much flexibility, you lose so much dry matter. Those are really not ways to get people excited about what can be done with these systems. So. I'm a huge fan of a flexible system that we can take big equipment on, small equipment on. And the only thing that we're changing in these systems and these cropland scenarios that we're putting together is how we're harvesting that forage. Whether it's with a tractor and hay bite or if it's with a beef cow or heifer or sheep or whatever you're using on your site. Then water and then also um, of the landscape. Understanding topography is a big deal. And those get more into the planning nuances of it, but those are things you never wanna minimize. So types of fence. Most grazers utilize uh, high tensile wire in Wisconsin. Now that doesn't mean you can't use barbed wire or woven wire or binder twine if that works to keep your cows in, that's fine. But for our purposes, for NRCS purposes, the majority of our contracts are high tensile electric fence because it works so well with these systems. It allows us to set up temporary fences, internal fences, and it sets those daily breaks and makes it easy to manage. Also, it's probably one of the cheaper systems put out there. So it really works well with what we're doing. This is a system that's in Brown County as well. Um, It's one of the sites I work with. This is a heifer grazer. Uh, We've looked at his numbers in the past. What you can't see right there, I don't know, can you see the mouse, Laura? Can you see that? This is actually a trout stream that's being rehabilitated. So we've got grazing right up against it. And this is another site. Five years ago, this was in a long-term corn and soybean rotation. So now think about what we've got here as far as water quality, management. We've got an economic system that's desirable for the producer to do, and he likes the way his heifers look after this. So this is a temporary fence for those of you who don't know. And one thing that I, it's, it's hard when you're in something for most of your life, you just assume people know what woven wire is, what poly wire is, what step and fence posts are. But this this line right here, this little piece of white strip is plastic and stainless steel strands that are like a rope that you can roll up and move. And this is part of the backbone of making these systems work because you can give them as much or as little as you want. You can confine them into the area. As long as your animals can respect the fence, And you've got water there, the sky's the limit. You can keep in 300, 500, it doesn't matter. If these if, if, herd size is not dependent on this fence if they respect that you can take your herd wherever you want and that's a ton of fun and everyone's scared about this but once they figure that out and once the animals know the system you can do a lot with this and the best part about this is animals can graze around corners you can wind it around you can take this and you can extend into your crop fields so if you've got 80 acres of pasture and it's so dry this summer that you've run out of out of places to graze What's a better decision? I'm going to start up the tractor and I'm going to cut that field and I'm going to bale that field and I'm going to bring it to the cows or put up some polywire and graze it and cut out all that extra stuff, all that extra cost and manage that and don't lose any of that production, but manage it with your animals instead of the equipment. Uh, Things to remember about a fence. Keep it simple. Keep it flexible. A good fence does not make a good grazer. One of the things that I find most interesting about grazing is Beginning grazers focus on what you need to start, and I get that. Fencing, water lines, lanes. Once you get into rotational grazing, you really start to see that is really not the thing to focus on. The thing to focus on when you start grazing and you start to get good at this is grass management, residual, and trying to get as much production off this land as possible because that works for everything then, and You'll people who start, they get into it, they build into that, and they snowball into that. But those are just the things and the fun opportunity that once you get them going right, let them go, see what happens. And the goal is to maximize dry matter production. I wouldn't say it's always the goal, but when you're dealing with 10 or $15,000 an acre land, um, unless you have a lot of money or or you've got some other goal in mind, you really can't lose production on there. So while I love the idea of grazing some of these more exotics and there might be places for them, um, that's never the place I usually start. I I don't really jump into these more complicated systems. we got to get people up and running, and then we can flex the system or make it into something different if they want to try something different. But we got to get them started off right, get those concepts and the foundational knowledge set um we need a good fencer i'm not going to go into this this is just stuff i wanted to be have the group aware of so that we were on the same page with this conversation um this is one of my favorite pictures laura you probably know this these are this is in tom Cadwallader's place this is a long time ago these are my uh college roommates one of my best friends they're his um brothers and they were at the pasture walking. and he took this picture and this has been kind of in my slides for a long time, but electric fences are mental boundaries that require training. So if you've seen a presentation from me that's talking about fence, you've probably seen this, but it really does show the point that there, there isn't anything there keeping those animals in except that single wire. And uh, those two animals are a lot of fun. The one was just over at my dad's place, Malachi, and he shot a doe, got one of the first deer again this last year, so that's fun. Anyways, watering systems. This is one thing that people, completely underestimate with grazing systems. A flexible water system that allows you to move that tank around the property is key. I hear so many conversations about people, I've got a water tank up by the barn, or I've got a water tank over there, or they've got this hesitation about putting up pipelines. And once you do pipelines and understand how to lay them out, they're actually pretty simple. They don't cost a lot. And the flexibility that gives you with nutrient management is insane. And the reason I say this is, If you have 80 acres and you put one water tank in the center that's accessible to all of your animals, and I can pick anybody that has any understanding of cows, where are those cows going to be on August 1st at 2 p.m. in the afternoon of 2022? There's there's absolutely no doubt that that herd is going to be standing by that single water tank. What's going on then? The whole herd is standing there, the whole herd is, defecating there, they're not grazing, they're not distributing their manure, and they're, they're not providing any level of management to your system. So if you're able to take these pipelines and put these cows in an acre or acre and a half or whatever your daily break or your two day break looks like and you've got that water there, think about what that does for manure distribution across your entire property. Now think about that in terms of this year. Now start compounding that 2, three, four, five, 10 years, 20 years. What does that start to do when I start talking about that snowball effect and long term management and making these soils and these grasses really start to produce. If you don't think about that from the get-go and set those habits straight from the get-go, people aren't gonna realize their full potential with these systems. I cannot stress that enough. So, um, just quick about water, it's the limiting factor in production. And also, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I've got a pond out there, or I've got this. I get it, that's cool. If you wanna water out there, I would say, let's talk about it. I, I'm not here to tell people what to do. But specifically in Wisconsin, uh, one of the biggest reasons I'd say not to water would be liver flukes. Um, And then also just the other opportunity for worms and parasites that uh, water sources that you can't control actually can introduce in your herd. Also, typically, if you give cows clean water versus uh, nasty water, they'll typically drink the clean water. Now, that being said, everyone's got a story about the cow drinking from the nasty water. So... I'm not going to argue those. They've done studies on that. My experience is in general, clean is good. And I would say clean is probably better just from the standpoint from the potential for parasites and also other worms that you might be introducing into their body or your herd. Trails and walkways. Typically nothing that I like to start with unless you're a dairy herd. If you're a beef farmer, this should not be your starting point management should be your starting point. You can always come back to these later. uh, Let me take that back. That's a pretty bold statement. I didn't mean to say it like that. There are reasons for trails sometimes, but the reality is most people need to re-envision or rethink about how they're going to manage. This trail, when you start looking at trails from a cost standpoint, I believe this trail ran about $25 a linear foot. It was maybe even more than that, I don't remember. I could look it up if we really needed to see that. But more importantly, this trail took up about three acres of property that runs $15,000 an acre. So now you've got this absolutely expensive trail. And this is actually a good place for all of it. This is gonna be used for long term. But think about this, if you could manage without a trail, why would you spend such an extreme price and lose all that acreage? when there are other opportunities to start with first. So while I'm not opposed to trails, I'm not saying we shouldn't have trails. I really want anybody, especially anybody who's a non-dairy grass producer to really think, do I need that? Because the cost is so much and it's so long-term and that's, that's put on the backs of the next 20 years of animals. So those are real considerations because if this business isn't profitable, what are we doing? How are you gonna stay there if you can't pay for it? And if a trail or a manure storage or a barnyard is going to bankrupt you, well, maybe we really got to step back and talk about the real goals of where this operation is going. So we don't need to jump into this more. Pasture inhalant plantings. This is a really, really big one for me. Understanding species, tying it to the soils. Um, don't want to like, I'm just going to say it like tall fescue in Wisconsin, it's not, not a great grazing plant. And most pasture mixes have tall fescue in them. Even the soft leaf tall fescues, I've got experience, I've got pictures, I've got places where we put cows in there where half the field was a soft leaf tall fescue. Some of it's just regular tall fescue and then we've got another mix to the side of it. They will absolutely graze the grazing mix into the dirt before they'll graze on that tall fescue. And this isn't just once that this happened to me and this is, we're talking about multiple, multiple, multiple times with this. So while you can get them to graze it, I'm a big proponent of, you know, why would you force them to graze something because you're instantly limiting dry matter intake at that point. Why not plant something on soils that's going to be desirable for them to graze that works with your system. Now, let's talk back about tall fescue, understanding where it fits. It's really great for stockpile forage. It's really great for hay production. And there are places for that, but understanding how you want to work that into your system. And that can help people get started as well. So the importance of residual. Here's another dairy heifer grazer. We've got some great numbers on this guy too. And it's a ton of fun. I'm not using names here, but I don't know. There were probably 160 heifers out here. But the thing with all this is, if you look at this picture and you come back, the one thing that you're going to see in all of my things, if, if I leave anything with any new grazer, the most important thing, in my opinion, that people getting into rotational grazing need to understand is how important residual is. Residual, not only from the environmental stance, but also from the long term. We're talking about increasing your dry matter production on your property half again, twice as much, depends on where you were at. Like there's just, that's the potential there. And people need to get over the concept of, Hey, it's, it's gotta go to three inches or, you know, this, this whole even grazing, like a hay field, you know, if you've got five or six or seven inches of residual there, people are thinking, Oh, I've lost that. You haven't lost it. And people, anybody can show a producer how they haven't lost that by understanding how to easily measure dry matter and you can do that. And what happens when you leave residual, you get into this rapid growth phase here, this phase two. So plants are growing exponentially as fast. They're not in this low area here where they've got to recover from the roots. All that recovery occurs from photosynthesis. So now, even though you left residual out there, instead of only grazing three or four times a year, I worked with people this last year who grazed eight times a year. So even though they took less off Per pass, and they needed bigger acres. They grazed it twice as much as what the average hay cutting is. Now this was a good forage year, and we've had good forage years. But the reality is, is I've been keeping tabs on this. I wish I would have kept better, better records. But I'm absolutely 100% confident that five to six inches on our cool season grasses is tip. It's going to outproduce the lower grazing. It just really is, and we need people to know that. So boys, on this is. If you are, if you've been around grazing circles, this this is the Godfather. Um, I would recommend anybody read his books, but these are still the concepts that we live by. Rest is vital. Avoid overgrazing, and I would even go so far as to say, avoid overgrazing by keeping residual at least three inches, but we should be thinking five, six, or seven inches, depending on your grass species. Uh, the animals with the greatest nutritional needs must be allowed the greatest quality and quantity of grass. So you get dairy cows out there, don't feed them straw. Don't feed them the heifer feed. The heifers can be the cleanup animals and avoid keeping animals on a given area for more than three days It is best to limit access to a 24 hour period. That is absolutely true. And you can prove that by going to any dairy grazer and asking them what happens to their bulk tank. If they keep them on a pasture for three days versus a 12 or 24 hour rotation, very simple. You get this a flat, much flatter production curve, if you're moving them every 12 to 24 hours versus three days, you start getting this roller coaster because they go in there that first day, they've got whatever they want, but they trample. Then they eat less the next day and they eat less the third day. There's something to really grasp about that management, what you can do if you understand those concepts. So trends in Wisconsin that I'm seeing right now, I'm not going to say these are the only trends, but these have been the largest trends that I am getting questions on and answering in, say I got to move my screen here little. So um, increase uh, interest in grass fed and grass finished or and organic beef. So when I look at the contracts, when I look at the questions I'm getting, there is a huge interest in the grass finished beef market or the grass fed beef market maybe finishing on corn and every nuance in the middle. So it's everything and anything in that statement, but it all kind of starts at the same point. So it's kind of one of those things where we can set up the grazing plan and you can work into a grass fed and you can go to a grass finish. And then if you want to go to organic, go for it. Uh, there's no real conflicting interest there unless you're talking about potentially like materials used like post or or you know organic seed. But if you're into it for three or four years, you're pretty good then already. Heifers on pasture for dairy systems. So Wisconsin is still, second for milk production in the U.S. I believe. So we're still the dairy state. But what I'm seeing is a lot of the the dairies are set with what they're doing. We're not seeing huge influxes of new grazers or new dairies. The new dairies are interested in rotational grazing and I get anywhere from one to five of them a year. But where I'm seeing the most interest is truly the heifers on pasture, because that works for any scale and any size. And when you start looking at the economics of that, that's just something that every dairy should be doing. Done well, that is absolutely an economic benefit to you. There's no downside to that, but I can tell unless you don't know how to manage pastures. The other thing is small ruminants, pasture pork, pasture poultry, um, rabbits. Um, for the small operations or homesteaders. And I'm getting more questions from homesteaders. When I say homesteaders, I'm seeing a a lot of people moving out to the country. We're seeing a lot of 10 to let's say 30 acre operations, sometimes smaller, sometimes bigger. Now I put ruminants in there. Pigs are ruminants, poultry is not a ruminant. So, you know, this is outside of NRCS standards but it's not outside of our scope of work with where we can help people with. So while that doesn't fit nicely into like an EQIP contract or our our goals or even our practice standards within the NRCS, I recognize that there's a huge interest in this across the entire state. Then some of the other things that I'm having a ton of fun with are extending the grazing season with cover crops, annual forages and stockpiled forages. I think this is easily the most uh, underutilized option that most grazers are doing. And I'm getting more and more interest with this. And I want to see wide scale adoption of this across the state. I'm going to make a push to get more and more of this going because there's just like with some of these others, there's just no downside to this. Now, understanding how to do that and incorporating it, we do need to go over some of that. There are There is a bit of a learning curve with that, but it's nothing so drastic that anybody who's got a little grazing experience couldn't do. I'm also seeing a huge increased interest in outwintering and or bale grazing just because it lowers your cost of production so much. When you look at beef operations and start looking at the economics of it, the big costs for beef operations are typically going to be Uh, winter feed costs, stored feed costs, and then also uh, death loss. Those typically are top two to top three, somewhere in there, depending on the operation. What's so nice about outwintering is you can eliminate that mechanical cost of starting up the equipment every day or every other day in the winter or whatever you think. You still have to pre-place the bales, but it's a lot easier on everybody to put them out there in a weekend in October versus having to start that tractor up when it's 20 degrees or even negative 20 degrees out. So there's a huge benefit to outwintering, not to mention now all that manure's out there, all that urine's out there. And if you plan that appropriately, so you're moving that and gritting that around, now you can move it from field to field to field and start applying a nutrient management plan with your grazing system. Think about what that means conceptually as far as long-term management, long-term dry matter production, and even lowered cost of production. And then um, the other thing that I'm seeing a lot of interest in are adoption of technology, grazing apps, grazing calculators like we're working with, with Laura and Randy drones. I've worked with people who are trying to move cattle with drones, uh, grazing collars, like the dog collars and bat latches and other concepts like that. I'm really looking forward to that. I'd like to eventually get some of those scenarios into NRCS because I think that there's absolute opportunity with all of these. All right. So, um, this is just an increase in grass fed and, uh, organic beef. So the big thing with this that I'm seeing, typically, uh, the grazing interest across the state, when I like break it into percentages, huge interest in beef operations across the state that probably would like put pork or chickens on the tail end with that, but their main product would be beef. And we're seeing a lot of 20 to 60 acre operations. That's probably the majority of our work right now. And those are also the operations that have potentially the most opportunity to operate in the red and lose money. So I'm a big fan of having real conversations with people about starting this upright. This is an environmental quality incentive program with NRCS, but also let's set this up as a business, a so long-term you're viable. You're going to be there. You're going to be happy with this. We'll make this easy for you to manage and not have it be a lot of work for you. And those are really big conversations like we've talked about. The other thing that I see is the dairy heifers on pasture. I work a lot with this and there's no downside to this. I've actually got three more CAFOs this year that are interested in putting their heifers out on pasture and I'm developing plans for two of them right now. It's a ton of fun. It's amazing. And when you look at these numbers, I'm being conservative here. Confinement cost for as a heifer is two fifty dollars a day. Pasture costs, $1.50 a day or less, depending on what you've got going on. And every operation's unique. But the reality is, is typically we're seeing at least a dollar a day savings when you start putting these animals out on pasture. A lot of these bigger guys, that means if they're putting 100 animals out a day, that means they're for doing nothing, not taking any more land to raise them, having an animal that's as good or better, and saving $700 a week. That's really the conversation that needs to be had with these people. They just need to be shown how to do that. And, you know, then this is the other thing, up to 2,000 pounds more milk their first lactation. So that was a paper that was put out. I've got people that have said they think they've seen it. That's the one number that I haven't actually quantified in the field with actual producer data or true numbers from people. But the one guy said that if that's actually true, it actually covers the cost of his rental ground for his animals, which is cool. And then improved overall health. That's always something I've got actually a, a grazer. I'm working with whose hoof trimmer was against him grazing. He just made a YouTube video about how good his cows uh, and heifers uh, feet look now. So that's fun. Pastured poultry, pastured pork, these smaller operations. There's a ton of this going on. One, um, One farmer I work with used to work for Snap-on and he did a, I don't know where he got his data from, but he did a study or maybe he read about it. But the reality is I have not worked with people who are raising chickens who don't think that they're probably one of the most profitable ventures on their operation. Now there can be a lot of work for about six to eight weeks depending on what your role is. But if you're talking about diversifying, getting animals on there, especially if you're looking at making all your income from home, I'm seeing just a ton of interest in this. And this happens to be my dad's place. So these were birds that I actually butchered this last year. So these birds, I took this picture, and then we set up an outdoor processing plant. I can butcher a bird a minute. You can set this up. It's a ton of fun. I know I've got great protein for my kids, and it's healthy. There's just no downside to it developing covers that work with crop rotations that can also be grazed. So I've got a no-till soybean field on the left that's got winter rye residual on there. And I put this picture in here for a reason because the field adjacent to this, the winter rye was grazed. So it could be viewed as cover crop or annual forage or whatever you wanna call it. But the reality is is that that field if we would have had slower season or the grass wouldn't have gone, that would have been grazed off and then the soybeans would still have been planted into there. And that gave this particular producer probably about a two to three week edge in the springtime for grazing while his pastures were catching up. And this same producer on the right, we planted vetch in between the corn and he harvested that corn as grain, and then he grazed the stalks in the vetch. So we're working with a ton of these cropping rotations. That have the potential to boost soil health, uh, add diversity to the rotation, but also now we can bring the cattle in there and if we can get three weeks on the front and three weeks on the back at a minimum, I mean that's huge when you start talking about the cost versus keeping them out there versus stored feed costs. So this is why I was talking about the stored feed costs. Grazing the covers we were at with these numbers here, we actually collected the data on this. We were at about a dollar head a day versus stored feed of over $2.50 a day. So every day that this herd is out is money in that producer's pocket. So when you start talking about margins with beef operations, you need to understand how thin they are. And I, I think that's one thing that I really want to stress within the NRCS and land conservation agencies. Like to build a manure storage in a barnyard, for every beef operation is a really bad thing if they don't have the income to actually empty that. I've seen operations built where we've spent a lot of money and the cost to empty that pit basically ensures that that operation will always operate in the red. That is not long-term conservation. Now, on the flip side, I'm not against barnyards, I'm not against manure storage, I'm not against any of that, but I do think that The conversation should have been had upfront first. We should talk about management, true management that's gonna make this conservation project, this grazing a long-term viable option into the future. And that's what we've gotta have if we wanna see this successful long-term. And then one of my favorites, we've been doing this at my folks place since early 2000s, bale grazing. Strategically placing bales in the wintertime to lower your mechanical cost, to spread your manure, to put your urine out there, These systems work so well. I love working with producers about this. And to date, every single producer, I'm telling you 100% of the producers that have done this, the way I've asked them to do it, has come back to me and said they love it and they will not do anything different. Now you've gotta have very real conversations with people about this because there's typically gonna be a, a winter thaw and mud season's always there, right? So those are real things to consider. And I never want to get people into a situation that they don't want to do. So you better have some real conversation before just saying that Bill grazing is amazing. It actually is amazing, but you've got to plan for the difficult portions of the year. So I kind of burned through that quick because we lost a little bit of time there. So um, let's go to questions.
1: Great, thank you so much, Adam. Um, Maybe we'll start with, uh, we have a couple of questions in the chat that we can start with, and then if other folks have questions, uh, just let us know and we can uh, cover those too. Um, So the first one is from Altfried Krusenbaum. Hi, Altfried. Um, How do you feel about dairy grazers who do not water on pastures since cows are coming to the facilities twice a day? And I I remember the... Yeah. I remember that kind of going back and forth over the years. Sometimes it's in favor and sometimes it isn't.
2: (laughs) I actually think that dairy grazers without water in the pasture get much better grass management than putting water in the pasture. I should have clarified that. I consider that a higher level management. I was more considering when I say the waters, the systems with heifers or beef, that they're going to be locked out there. But to not have water in the pasture for the dairy cows and the ability to tank up, it's an absolute benefit. So I'm not scared of putting it out there one bit, so.
1: Then the the issue would be having a large enough tank um, by the barn when they come in to milk, so they're, they can all get their fill.
2: Yep, they've got to be able to bulk up when they get there, absolutely.
1: Okay, and another water-related question from Joey and Julia. Um, do you run permanent water lines out to the farthest fields in some of these systems, and are they b- above ground or below ground?
2: Um, I run thousands and thousands of feet of water line every single year. We're talking some projects have miles of them. The reality is still pretty cheap. Um, yes. So the furthest field. Now that being said, if you've got a, a one-acre field that's you know on the backside of the farm, you might consider different options at some point, but don't be scared to run pipelines as far as burying them versus on the surface. Um, it's really going to be the producers. Um, that's going to be a lot to weigh with the producer. I'm a bigger fan of not burying them because when I look back at all the systems that I've installed between fencing and water lines and all the pipelines typically have the highest failure rate. And as soon as it's buried, then you got to go find the problem. Now, I if someone is absolutely adamant that they want to bury that for some reason or other, or if maybe they want to extend the, the winter or the fall grazing a little bit because the ground can buffer it from frost, yeah, that's fine. But I wouldn't start there. That's just me, though. Right. Great.
1: Great. Uh, question from Lynn Markham. Um, What is typical herbicide, pesticide use on grazing lands and how does it compare to corn and soybeans?
2: It's much lower. Um, As far as what we're seeing typically with uh, the herbicides that we're using, I would say most of the time if we do have a herbicide application, it's gonna be on those initial seeding years for pasture and hayland planting just to Set the ground or set the bar right, and then the other places where I see herbicide application would be with like thistle control or something like that. And there's different organic ways of handling that as well, but that's really uh, the majority of it. And as with anything, every operation is a little bit different, but it's drastically lower than corn and beans. So, Adam, would you want to
1: maybe? Um... Stop sharing your screen and then we can see everybody's faces.
2: I'm trying to get it up, and (laughs) I don't know why it doesn't want to uh, do that. Resume, share, stop.
1: Let me see if I can do it. There we go.
2: Sorry, I couldn't. It wasn't allowing me to do anything, so thank you. (laughs)
1: That's okay. (laughs) All right. Looks like Randy has a question for you. Randy?
3: Thanks, Adam. Fantastic uh, talk. Um, I guess one of the things that we hear a lot is that um, grazing is great for the little guys. Grazing's great for, as you make uh, a lot of hay about here, um, uh, heifer grazing. What about um, this issue of that you can't really get too big uh, with respect to dairy in particular, but with beef too? Uh, do you see that as a real impediment or are there ways that people are getting around that? And, um, yeah, you know, just be interested, any thoughts on that?
2: So the reality is I don't think that there's any herd that's too big to graze. And what we're running into in the northeast area is going to be farmers that absolutely, when we start talking about grazing to CAFOs, I really thought that we were going to be run out. But the reality is most of them are interested in in some shape or form. They recognize that their heifers or their cows off of concrete are a good decision. The challenges that we're running into are big enough blocks of contiguous acres to actually set these systems on. So while you could graze any size herd, I think the true limitation is how do you pull together blocks of land in a big enough, block to make it feasible and that from my experience is going to be the limiting factor because the ones where we do we're able to get big chunks or with some of the other grazers we're working with we've got three four sometimes five different leases and fences going across all these different properties and that takes a huge level of coordination and communication to actually bring those together so that is going to be a challenge but we've got a lot of time to try so let's do it (laughs)
1: Great. Here's a question from Todd. Hi, Todd. Um, He's asking about addressing old tall fesky paddocks, how to improve them.
2: Uh, The best answer is two years of roundup ready beans. (laughs) Uh, The the reality is, um, if they're grazing them, and it's not a problem and it works for your herd. It's pretty hard to get rid of unless you want to do a complete renovation. So I would probably say, hey, is that something that you could start looking at using alternatively? Since you've got it already, how can you make that something to your advantage? Tall fescue stockpiles amazingly well. So that's a plant that could be made into pretty pretty good hay for bale grazing in the wintertime. And then you could stockpile that into October and November and start utilizing that. Now, if your whole system's tall fescue, I would say we'd really have to have a conversation about your goals and the direction that you want to take the place. So if they're grazing it, there's no issues, and you're happy with it, don't change it. But my experience has been that there's a reduced intake on tall fescue in the majority of circumstances. That might not be an answer. I'm a little hesitant to go much more specific until I'd be on site and actually take a look at something like that, so.
1: All right, thank you. Other questions? Feel free to unmute yourself and and speak up if you had a question or a comment.
0: Could I ask uh, Adam, just a follow up to that, discussion about Northeastern Wisconsin and and kind of the limitation of not having contiguous land. Have you run across anyone that is, you know, starting to learn more about grazing and the benefits and willing to take some of their good cropland and transition it to pasture? Like, Because I'm guessing that's the main hurdle here. You've got a lot of contiguous cropland out there, but I feel like it's it's a pretty big hurdle to kind of get heifer grazing land on par with your good cropland in terms of your whole farm kind of system management
2: like do you see the, any of that changing um, you're you're that's the wrong, that's not what's happening actually people are putting in their good cropland and the reason they're able to put their good cropland in is because we can set these systems up. So that way we can still mechanically harvest it with any size of equipment. So in order to get people to adopt this on their best cropland, which is what we should be doing, we've yeah. got to set up a fence system that doesn't impact their ability to harvest it with the biggest equipment out there. And that's how you do that by making long runs, keeping the ends open on both sides and keeping it a super flexible system. The, the limit is not, Cropland land adoption the, the limiting factor is the fragmentation of property ownership and that's probably the bigger hurdle gotcha. you know if you look at a plaque book up here very few people have much more than 80 acres in any given block and if you start talking about just just a, a regular not even a capable sized herd they'll have 100 bred heifers you can't even support that on 80 acres depending on the soils in a lot of places so right. those are those are the challenges so gotcha Cool,
1: thanks. Great, other questions?
2: I'll jump into what I think is exciting. I think (laughs) mixing these covers with grazing and using covers as a gateway drug for more grazing is a real opportunity. I think we're just scratching the surface on this. We've got a real challenge with the latitude that we're at in Wisconsin because some falls are great and some aren't. And we've got to figure out these mixes that work well consistently. I'd like to get to the point where we've got a mix that's consistently going to produce eight out of every 10 years that can handle heavy wet snow loads and can take our grazing seasons from May to October, from May to December and January and beyond. And that is a true goal, if we can get that going, and I'd love to see that adopted across the state. Now that works with dairy heifers, that works with beef animals. I don't know if those um, standing covers, I want to get some forage samples on that for to test it against dairy quality. I don't think it would work, but who knows, maybe I'm wrong. You don't know. Depends on the,
1: on the crop, make. I suppose. Yeah, so that
2: I think that's just a ton of fun. Then you start tying that with the bale grazing, like there's just so much opportunity for good to happen with this. And I'm looking forward to that. So Alfred, I see you got your hand up. What's up?
4: Yeah, Adam, thank you so much for your presentation. I'm just wondering, uh, where do you see the future for dairy grazing in the state?
2: Well, I, I don't think that dairy is leaving Wisconsin. Most of the producers I'm working with are kind of set in their ways. What I think for dairy grazing, what I think should be happening is every producer that's not a CAFO should be looking at dairy grazing. I really think that because, you know, if you're dealing with four or 500 headed animals, You're not talking about needing thousands and thousands of acres contiguous. You've still got a huge opportunity. And when you start looking at Tom Kriegel's numbers and just different numbers out there, that's just an untapped potential for people to dive into that. When I I talk about interest with um, dairy heifers, the thing that's fun for me is most of the people, most of these herds that have started adopting grazing their heifers, The next step that they go to typically is going to be their, their bread or their um, non-lactating dairy cows or dry cows. And then I've even got the next step that I get them looking at is their late lactation cows. So I'll take one step at a time. And I try, I'd love to get more and more of them out there. So, but I was just making the comment from the standpoint of where most of our applications are coming in. I'm not seeing a lot of conversion on, Dairies, but I am seeing consistently, you know, that one to five a year, which I'd say is actually it doesn't sound like much, but that's actually pretty good when you think that we've been losing so many herds across the state, which is so unfortunate. So, Randy.
3: I wonder if uh, you might venture into the policy world, Adam. I know that it's uh, thin ice for you as an NRCS employee, but... What do you see as uh, some policy levers that would be useful to help get more grazing out on the landscape?
2: Make grass equal to corn and beans. I'm telling you, this is that simple. Give it a level playing field. It doesn't even need an advantage. It just needs a level playing field. Stand back and watch what happens.
1: So you mean in terms of um, subsidies Subsidies. and crop insurance and that sort
2: of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think I'd like Alfred to comment on that too. Do you have any other, because he's out of the dairy world. What do you think about that? Did we lose you?
4: Yeah, no, no, it takes me a while to unmute that, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I'm not so sure that that would, uh, let's say good example, a neighbor of mine had 700 cows and um, I got, I talked them into grazing their heifers, uh, at least one group of the heifers last year. And, and I tried to teach them how to move wire, how to move poly wire. And um, it, after about two months of this, they gave up. And they said, no, This is just way too much work. We just throw feed in the mixer and come drive past the fence line feeding and we're done in 10 minutes. And um, I think it comes back to your quote that you put out there originally. It is whatever, if you think it can be done, it can. And if you think it can't be done, it can't. And I'm not sure that policy changes help change the mindset of somebody who is so ingrained in believing in a confinement system versus a grazing system.
2: I absolutely agree with that because my experience is the exact same as Alfred's there. And this is the reality that I've run across. So when you start dealing with larger scale operations, you can get complete buy-in from the owner, but the guy moving the fence better have buy-in too. So if you have a hired man who likes driving tractor and skid steering, that's why he's came to you to work, and now you're going to tell him to manage cows, any eight-year-old can move cows, but you still have to have a critical eye to look at the grass and understand what's going on. And it will be an absolute disaster if your hired man or hired woman doesn't have an aptitude for that. You have to have that in order for these systems to work because it is an absolute management shift. And I I completely agree with you, but I also would say though, that there's a lot of people that I've talked to that are interested and you're not, not not everyone's going to grace. It's just not going to happen. Not everyone wants to, it's still a free country. There's still ways to do good things in different ways. But what I would love to see is just an equal playing field for the people who are considering that so that there's not, we're not going to cut them at the feet right away. And I think that would be a benefit.
1: Great, Thank you. Well, we have one last question, if everyone can hang on for a minute. Um, and that is, um, can you give a rough, rough estimate as to how many head of cattle can be supported on 20 versus 80 acres?
2: That's a dangerous question. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to just um, answer that. Let me, let me answer that differently. In general, in Wisconsin, the majority of our soils produce three to three and a half tons of dry matter a year, just with normal cropping systems. That means on average, the average acre of soil can support 1,000 pounds of animal per year, per summer, not per year, per summer. That is a pretty common math that we use. But you got to be careful with that because if you're on a two ton soil, you can get yourself in real trouble with that. So so in general, it's about a thousand pounds per acre on the average Wisconsin soil, but that is not math that I would hang my hat on anywhere because most grazing operations are buying what the bigger farmer didn't want. And it's the poorer soils, the steeper soils, the less producing soils. So be aware of that when you're doing your math and make sure you're not over uh, selling what this can be. Best thing that's to, why a,
1: the first step is a good grazing plan, right, Anna?
2: <laughs> absolutely. Have someone look at that site and help you develop that. The best thing that Laura or I or Alfred or anybody who's out there is not our knowledge of what we've done, but our contacts. Like if you want to do something, somebody knows somebody's already done it. So there's no sense to reinvent the wheel. Go over there and talk to that person. Say, hey, what do you think of this? They'll say, well, I really like this. I really like this. This absolutely sucked. I'll never do that again. And don't, you know what they say, wisdom isn't learning from your mistakes. Wisdom is learning from someone else's mistakes. I mean, (laughs) we don't need to reinvent this wheel. So we can take what has been learned over the last 30 years and move forward with a lot of this. So that would be my, the biggest thing that people could learn from the people that we all know as a group. So,
1: I think we'll wrap things up there. Um, thank you so much, Adam. And thanks to our participants for um, uh, sticking with us. Uh, we apologize again for that hack and the offensive material that was viewed.
2: Randy um, did have one. I, I see a couple questions here, Laura. I'll stick around. I with-
1: think they're, they're applause maybe. Oh,
2: maybe. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, Sorry.
3: Slightly. Hands, hands clapping. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, so um, anyway, um, thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, we'll be back in the spring, I think, with some more digital dialogues. So look for those. And if you have ideas of topics that you'd like to hear about, uh, please let us know. So thanks so much.
2: Thank you, everyone. Appreciate the opportunity.
0: The Digital Dialogue Series is continuing in 2022. You can visit grasslandag.org to learn more about this year's speakers and join one of our live webinars. A big thanks to Adam Abel for presenting in the Grassland 2.0 Digital Dialogue Series.